So Money Episode 602, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Leah Gervais. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome to the show. Happy Friday. It is Friday, July 21st. Summer is here, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're having a good one. I'm looking forward to a vacay next week, starting on the 28th all the way through August 11th. It's the longest vacation I've taken since my honeymoon. Yes, it's time. (laughs) I need to take a break. I now have two children, ages three and four months. So very much looking forward to that. It's been a while since I've really caught up with some of you. I know that it's been a month since I've really sent an email out. It's been pretty nuts in the Farnoosh Tarabi Dusinger household. Some exciting events happened. I got to see Hamilton. I went and uh, met Sofia Amoroso, who's the founder of Girl Boss. We did an event with her and Mint. My son turned three. I saw the new kids on the block. Remember the new kids? on the block. Well, they're a little older now, but they still are hanging tough. (laughs) And a few girlfriends and I went and saw them when they came to Brooklyn uh, back in June. Also in June, I met Deepak Chopra for the first time ever. Pretty incredible. The man is just as insightful and serene and kind and uh, lovely as, as you would imagine. Colette turned four months, July 3rd, and then we celebrated our country's Independence Day on the 4th. And then uh, great news, my book-to-brand workshop sold out uh, last week. And actually, we got more people than we uh, initially thought we would get. I had thought maybe I would get eight people. We ended up getting 10 really incredible authors and authors-to-be to to join us in the fall for what looks to be a semi-annual event. And so if you're wondering what I'm talking about or didn't get in to the fall workshop, send me an email, farnoosh.farnoosh.tv or go to booktobrand.farnoosh.tv and check out what we're all about and apply for maybe getting in on the next Book to Brand Workshop. That's going to happen in the spring, either April or May. Haven't narrowed down a day yet, but you will be the first to know. All right. So that's our housekeeping and a little flashbacking into my life for the past four weeks. My co-host today is the founder of Urban20something.com. It's a hub, a resource, and an online community for young professionals making money outside of their day jobs and building wealth at a young age. I love this. I did this in my 20s. I still hustle in my 30s. Leah Gervais is here. She's an avid listener. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. How did you come up with the idea of Urban 20-something? Was this something that you were struggling with? Yes. I started it um, when I was declining my law school acceptances. I had sort of planned on going to law school for most of my you know, adult life through high school and college. And uh, I think a lot like a lot of other um, millennials in particular, I had sort of thought it would be a really lucrative path. And then you get in and you see uh-huh. the, the cost and the debt. And I was like, 
this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. And, um, that's when I got really into personal finance and I ended up, uh, declining my law school acceptances, um, and started this to document my sort of unpaved path at that point because I didn't really know what I was going to do since I had always planned on going to law school. And it's really evolved in two ways that um, have worked for me to make extra money and ways that have not worked and for other people to make extra money on their own as well. Okay. So you went from not going to law school to launching the blog. What did you do in between to make money? Um, well, I took a couple of months off after I declined my law school acceptances because I was working at a law firm at the time and I sort of didn't see the point to, uh, keep working at in the legal field when I knew it, what I wasn't going to do. So I traveled for a little while by myself and sort of had to learn, um, freelancing at that time and, um, sort of the possibilities behind um, making money online. And that's when I really became obsessed with it. And then I came back to New York uh, where I live now and I work in a nonprofit, which I love, um, but I still think it's really important and exciting for young professionals to make money outside of their job. So how can we do it? I mean, how can we make money outside of our jobs? I get this question a lot. I have my own strategies, but I want to hear yours. I think that there's so many I mean, there's an unlimited way, um, there's unlimited amounts of ways to do this. We know this. And like you said, there are ways from pet sitting, babysitting. I'm still a huge fan of babysitting as a sort of side hustle. I think it's a way underrated one, but really with the power of the internet and, um, sort of info products and blogging, um, you can pack, you know, purpose, whatever you're passionate about, um, into a way that can teach someone else who might be interested in it, how to do it. And that's, I think a really untapped or getting more tapped into opportunity. I know it doesn't matter, but what did your family think when you said to them, I'm not going to law school? Yeah. Well, I'm very fortunate that I have extremely supportive parents. And, uh, I think that they were, you know, nervous for me that I wasn't about to do this really safe path. Um, but I also think that they would have been nervous for me to go into a lot of student loan debt because, you know, you hear over and over again that it's just not, it's just getting worse and harder to get out of. And it's just becoming more of an epidemic for our generation. So I think my parents just, they were nervous for me, but they had faith that, um, I could, you know, figure something else out. Listen, if you can pass the LSATs, that in and of itself is a triumph. And I think it says a lot about your determination, your ability to analyze things, get stuff done. I mean, truly, whatever you do will be successful. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I've gone on the record and told people maybe, you know, we shouldn't go to law school. And people are like, what? Farnoosh, how can you say that? You know, this is this person's life's academic work. Maybe you've experienced this, but, you know, in my day when I was in college and people were looking at grad school, law school was where I think people went when they didn't quite know what they wanted to do, where they wanted to go. And it was considered safe because really, what could go wrong? You have a law degree at the end of the day. It's a reputable thing and you could find many jobs. Potentially you could practice law, you could start a business. There are a lot of ways to apply a law degree. But like you said, you know, it comes with a very high price tag usually, unless you're fortunate to have all the money in the bank or you've earned scholarships, you're facing a really tall six-figure loan when you come out of law school. And so you have to think about all these things. I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. You are proving that you can make the hard decisions in life and you can still find happiness. So go you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. And um, just 
another note on uh, law school is I, I have a friend, a good friend who also graduated from law school, still with no debt and still feels sort of trapped. So it even goes beyond you know, the money part of it. It's really not just you can do whatever with a law degree. You can do law with a law degree. <laughs> yeah. If you like going through stacks of legal papers, it's it's not law and order, people. I think you're going to help a lot of our listeners today. There are questions I see here about credit, buying a home, and even a question about finding a mentor. Our first question, though, is from Tyler, and it's an audio recording. So let's take it away, Tyler. Hello, Farnoosh. I first heard about your podcast when you had an event in downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. Ever since that day, I have been an, a subscriber and I love all of your episodes. I have a question here where I just received my first credit card and I have a thousand dollar limit. I heard that you're not supposed to have more than a 30% utilization rate, meaning that I should only spend $300 of that a thousand dollar credit. Do you believe in this? Do you think this is a great way to improve your credit score? Because this has me paying off my credit card four to five times every month so that I stay under that 30% rate. Am I doing it right or am I doing nothing important at all? Thanks so much, Tyler. And I'm glad that we sort of got to meet in Springfield. That was a while ago. I think you're doing the right thing by keeping your utilization to no more than 30%, even if it means going in and paying your bill off here and there every time you spend. Uh, a large part of your FICO credit score, as we know, depends on your debt to credit utilization. And that's a really long term. It's really boring to say out loud. It's jargony. But basically, it equates to how much credit you're using out of all of your available credit. And the lower your credit utilization, the better. The rule of thumb is keep it to no more than 30%. So if you've got a $1,000 credit limit, like on your card, really you don't want to be carrying a balance of more than $300 or having a bill of more than $300 at any point during the month. Your credit score can be checked at any point during the month. It's not just after you pay off your credit card bill. But I think that the bigger issue here for Tyler is that his credit limit is low. $1,000 is not a lot. So call and ask for an increase. That might make things a little easier for you, not having to you know, scurry to pay off the balance every time you spend something. I think that's the bigger issue. If you've been paying off your debt responsibly for at least a year, you can totally call your credit issuer and ask for a higher limit. And this way you don't have to hustle to pay off your balance. Give yourself some breathing room and pay your bills maybe just once a month instead of three times a month. And I would ask for $5,000, not so that you can spend $5,000, but so that, again, you can reduce your debt to credit ratio, which is actually, this is one of my hacks, Leah. You might like this. To raise your score quickly, call your credit card issuer and ask for an increase in your credit limit because this effectively and immediately reduces your debt to credit ratio, assuming you have an outstanding balance or you have a balance. And that basically reduces your debt to credit ratio within one billing cycle. How many credit cards do you have, Leah? Uh, four, maybe five. Four or five. Okay. So do you use them all? Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of them, which I know can be an unpopular opinion in the personal finance uh, conversation, but I think that they have incredible reward benefits. And if you have self-discipline, I think that there's a lot of good that can come out of them. You know, I probably also have four or five. I don't keep them all in my wallet. 
And I only realized this after checking my credit report once back in my 20s. I saw that I had a few cards, a couple cards, additional cards in my name that I'd opened up, I guess, in college. This was back in the early 2000s when you could actually apply for a credit card on campus. And in exchange, banks would give you all these tchotchkes like mugs and t-shirts. And so I applied for a few to get the freebie. And then I would get the cards in the mail and never really use them. I would just, I don't even remember what I would do with them. Have you ever done this? I also don't keep them all um, in my wallet. I have not really gone to see if I have any that I don't know about. I hope I know about them all. (laughs) It's something to do. You know, whenever someone young asks me about applying for a credit card, the first thing I say is look at your credit report to see if you already have one (laughs) that you might've applied for at one point and forgot about it. And if it's a good card, meaning that it's got a low interest rate, a reasonable limit, you know, it's it's sizable, stick with that. Maybe it's got some points attached to it or cash back, even better. And to Tyler's question, I think it's fine to pay your balance off more than once a month. I do this too sometimes when I go on a bit of a spending spree in the middle of the month. And I do this because I want to be sure that my utilization ratio is low because your credit score, again, can get checked at any point during the month. And if you're refinancing your mortgage like I did earlier this year or applying for a car loan, which I did earlier this year. I was very was very concerned about my credit score this year. I just wanted to make sure that I was doing everything right and that I wasn't making any silly mistakes that would come to haunt me. I actually might be wrong on this friend. You're saying you might need to correct me, but I think if this credit card is one that you do get rewards on, like if you get cash back on it or you get airline miles or whatever, I think that they give you the rewards based on your balance at the end of the month. So if you spent $300 that month, but you've paid off 280 of it already, I think you only get the the rewards for that outstanding $20, not the whole 300 that you spent. And that's to avoid people buying things and then returning them after they've gotten the rewards. So I think it's worth trying to wait until the end of the month and paying it all off in whole if there's rewards. I think that's right. Good tip. All right, let's move on to Angelique. You want to read this question for us, Leah? So Angelique has a family member who is interested in buying a home, and this family member would be a first-time buyer. Unfortunately, both he and his spouse's credit is not good, uh, although hers, his spouse's, is a little better. Is there any suggestions we have? They're a family of four. Okay, Angelique, my advice for your family member is wait. Wait until your credit is in better shape. A mortgage is a huge endeavor. It's a huge financial liability. So take the time to rebuild your credit. And just to give this some context, there was actually an interesting study that came out last week from Chase Slate. And as everyone knows, I'm a brand ambassador for Chase Slate. They just issued their 2017 credit outlook. And I found some related stats to this question. You know, many people who are first time buyers are in the millennial generation. And the millennials are checking their credit scores a lot because their priority is to buy a home soon. And in their 2017 credit outlook, they have some related stats. And their study found that 33% of millennials, one in three, plan to buy a home in the next four to five years. And many of these millennials are checking their credit scores frequently because their priority is to buy a home soon. And their credit score was actually a big factor the study found, in the type of home they could buy. Which brings us back to the question, 
uh, right, that Angelique asks, which is how important is credit when it comes to buying a home? It's extremely important. It's one of the first things that a bank will consider when they're deciding whether to give you a loan and if they are, how much of an interest rate they're going to attach to that loan. Have you ever applied for a mortgage, Leah? No, this this one I'm a little in the dark on living in New York. <laughs> yeah, and you're in New York too. It's a hard market to crack when it comes to housing. So it goes without saying, your credit score is going to play a very important role in how much of a mortgage you will get and the interest rate that will be attached to it. Just a little fun fact, according to FICO, the best interest rates are going right now to borrowers with credit scores of 760 or higher. And these are people who are borrowing for a mortgage. So Angelique, if their scores are not in the 700s, rebuild, rebuild that score. And you start by paying your bills off in full every month. You can automate your bills to make it easier. Keep that debt to income ratio low. It doesn't make sense to rush in unless all your finances are in order. Okay. Sorry to be a little bit of a downer on that one, but good things come to those who wait and raise their credit scores. (laughs) Thanks for your question. All right. You might actually have fun with this question, Leah. It's a question from Danny. She says there's a woman at work who's always given her really great advice, but she doesn't work directly with her. So how might she approach her to be a mentor? So this is a great question. I think that finding people to look up to is very important, especially if you are a younger professional, because our generation has a notorious reputation for thinking that we, you know, don't need that, that we're, we're already leaders, even though we're quite young. So I think it's great that you're looking for someone to be a mentor and, um, it's really works out well that there's someone in your life who already is giving you great advice. Um, I would say, first of all, if you're nervous about sort of approaching her in this formal way that you don't actually, you know, need to label her as a mentor. I don't really know this woman's personality, but if she's never really felt like she's had that mentorship relationship with someone younger, it might feel like it comes with a lot of maybe responsibility or commitment. If you go up and directly ask her to be your mentor. So instead you might just, you know, start gently, um, asking if you can take her to coffee and letting her know that you, um, are thinking about your career and you've been inspired by the advice she's given you or perhaps her own career and kind of maybe let it develop naturally from there. Um, and if it feels right to ask her to regularly meet with you or to see if you can reach out to her on a more personal level, I definitely think it's a good idea, but I don't think it needs to be, um, a, uh, concrete relationship right away in order for you to still benefit from what advice she has to give you. That is awesome advice. I agree. I think that if this woman has already extended herself to lend advice to Danny, I think it's a good sign that she's open to this kind of relationship. And it sounds like Danny wants to kind of formalize it, but I agree. I think it's best to keep it casual for now, go out for coffee, lunch, buy her some coffee and say, you know, I really find your advice invaluable. It's hard for me to find people to trust. I really admire you. You've been so generous with your feedback and I'd love to continue picking your brain. Simple as that. You know, and sometimes I will say this, I think as mentees, we sometimes think that we don't have a lot to offer. We're younger, we're less experienced, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, the more you get to know each other, the more you might realize you have a lot to offer this person. It doesn't have to be a one directional relationship. So think about ways that you can be of service to this to this colleague. Maybe you know someone that she would like to meet. You have a resource. You have advice that she'd like to leverage. I think millennials have a ton of advice to give. There's a way to have reciprocity. And, you know, 
it's a mentorship, but really it's a relationship with give and take. So go in with that mindset and I think it'll be a more of a, a winning situation. All right, Valerie, Leah, another credit question. <laughs> it's, it's Credit Friday. Take this question away. Everyone's asking about credit because everyone just spent a ton of money on summer vacations. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Valerie says that she has great credit and is wondering if it is a good idea to close out an old credit card, especially an old department store credit card that she hasn't used in over seven years. I think it's okay. You know, I think typically store credit cards don't come with very big lines of credit. If this was a card that had a really big credit limit, like $10,000, I would say maybe don't close out the card. And actually, I would say start using it a little bit so it doesn't just get shut off on you. Attach a bill to it so it stays alive. And credit issuers and companies sometimes do close accounts, credit card accounts, if they haven't been used in seven, 10 years. So that might be something that will just solve itself. But if this is something that is not a very high credit limit, you can close it and feel okay about not hurting your credit score. Because as we just discussed, you know, your debt to credit ratio is important. And the higher your credit limit is, the better typically for your credit score, assuming that you don't have a lot of debt. I personally have opened up one too many store credit cards. So I can speak from experience and it's tempting. What can I say? I will say that Victoria's Secret is very aggressive of, of many of the retailers that I've opened cards at. I didn't open one at Victoria's Secret. I was old enough to know and wise enough to know that I shouldn't do another one, but they do the hard sell. She's like, I'll give you the discount. She kept pushing and I actually had to be a little rude and say, you know what? I I do this for a living. This is not a good thing. And if I know, I, I I was thinking if I was someone younger, less experienced, if I was my younger self, I would have opened up that card. And I feel like sometimes, Leah, you get bullied into making bad money choices. Has this ever happened to you? Um, yeah, I agree. I also, when I graduated college, ended up with maybe one too many department store credit cards. But admittingly, a lot of them just sit in my drawer. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't really get stressed about them. I don't really use them and they don't really bother me. So I don't really touch them. But I, for this woman, I do think after, you know, seven years, if she has great credit score, I don't think it's a huge deal. But I also would, you know, I don't think there's harm in asking yourself really, why are you closing it? Is it really that much of a stress? Is it really going to help you to close it? It might just get shut off for you. And that's happened to me. Yeah, I've been around the block. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> yeah, well, I do notice that at some of the, you know, not big, like I feel like the bigger department stores have a little bit more of a sophisticated credit system, but stores like Ann Taylor and Victoria's Secret, it's, it's, it, it can be ugly. So beware. <laughs> beware. Okay, last question here is from Patty. You know, Leah, you may not own a car because you live in New York. That is right, yes. But her question is that her Patty's auto lease is coming to an end. Where are some good places for her to look before replacing her car? I really like Edmunds.com. It's a website, E-D-M-U-N-D-S.com. It's a very comprehensive website with auto experts writing about and evaluating all things cars, from pre-owned cars to new cars, how to lease, how to own, how to finance, the cost to own, which includes not just car payments, but maintenance and gas, and just really has so much content, provides a holistic analysis on car ownership, car leasing. But I would also 
say to Patty, talk to your friends, family, co- coworkers, and ask about their good experiences, their bad experiences, the dealerships they like, someone at dealerships they trust. I'm not really a car expert, but I, I do refer to Edmunds a lot when doing articles on buying and leasing. And I will say this, maybe not think about leasing next time. I mean, it's fine if you'd like to have a different kind of car every few years and you can comfortably afford this and you're cash flow positive. It's really a luxury to lease a car and do it comfortably. But for I think for most people, just buy a reliable car, pre-owned, certified, with you know a manufacturer's warranty and plan to just drive it into the ground you know 7 10 years hundreds of thousands of miles a car is a depreciating asset and i think when you buy and hold in the end the cost pays off so start with edmunds and anything else we can offer her any other advice I'm so clueless with cars. I moved to New York when I was 18 to go to school. So I've really like never had one or barely driven. Um, but the only thing I also would just comment on is looking into the leasing versus owning because it seems something like a car, especially if someone would be open to buying a used car, could make a lot of financial sense to just buy one. Here, here. Leah, thanks for joining me. Did you have fun? Yeah, it was a great time. Thank you so much. I love your podcast and I don't know if you'll put this in, but, um, Anyone who's out there, listen to her every day because it keeps me motivated. Even when what she talks about has really nothing to do with my own financial life. Oh, thank you. By the way, how did you discover the show? I, I found it about when I started um, my my blog. Um, and I think it was just through looking through different ways to digest um, personal finance. And I had read, I had grown up reading personal finance books because I have a CPA for a father. Um, but when I was traveling, I didn't really have access to books in English <laughs> or books, um, you know, in general, new ones. So I got more interested in the podcasts and yours is my favorite. Well, we love having you as a listener. So please, please keep in touch and let me know all of you, What do you like of the show? What do you want more of, less of? The more you tell me what you want, you know, the better the show can thrive. So please email me, farnoosh at farnoosh.tv or go to somanypodcast.com and you can reach me there. Uh, Also, go to urban20something.com, Leah's website, Leah Gervais. Even if you're in your 30s or 40s, I mean, come on, it's the gig economy, right? Yeah, I agree. I would have named it differently now looking back. (laughs) I will say that my, my side hustles in my 20s, which included dog sitting, pet sitting, freelance writing, eventually led me to the path that I'm on now, believe it or not. It was actually it was actually one of my main points in my commencement speech at Penn State was just, you know, don't poo-poo the side hustle. Embrace the side hustle. Embrace the gig economy. Leah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. I'm Farnoosh Sharabi, and I hope your weekend is so money. 